We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run, always chasing, never stop. Hello, hello, you chasers of excellence. Patrick here with a quick introduction to this week's episode. I'm doing a quick introduction because I was unfortunately not able to be there for the recording of this conversation between Ben and Ishan Shivanand. Ishan is a mindfulness coach, spiritual teacher, and the founder of Yoga of Immortals, which you can learn more about at yogaofimmortals.com. His work brings the ancient yogic wisdom and healing sciences of India to millions across the world. Ishan and Ben first met a few months ago when Ishan did a yoga mindfulness breathwork workshop at CrossFit New England, which they, they talk a little bit about at the end of this conversation. So I'm excited for you to hear this episode. One little thing before we kick it off, uh, because I was not there for it, the uh, I was not there to make sure that the audio quality is uh, up to our usual standards. So apologies for that, and uh, thank you for the grace uh, at our imperfections. Without further ado, here is Ishan, Shivanand, and Ben. Enjoy. Well, I think we'll, let's maybe start the conversation off with maybe the, the biggest, highest arching thing. We, as a, our community, what we talk a lot about is living a fulfilled life, living a life to maximize our potential. I know it's something you are passionate about. So what, is it, what does that mean to you when you hear a fulfilled life? What is that? And what are some of the things that we should be thinking about as we try to have that as our, our one of our top pursuits. So, sir, um, just before I was coming to you, I was doing a, a jiu-jitsu training, and uh, I was sparring with a black belt. And by the fourth round, my body gave out. My mind knew that he's about to give a kimura, or he's about to give a armbar, and I could see it coming from far away. I could see it coming. And I wanted to do so many things. So my mind wanted to do so many things, but my body gave out. After the sixth round, even my mind gave out. And my mind was like, somewhere there was a voice saying, do it, do it. But I wasn't capable. But after seven rounds, I knew this is it, finished. So I could rejuvenate, recover it. Now imagine people who are living life and they want to do so many things, but it's not a jiu-jitsu six round match. It is our 80 year or 90 year life. And so many people I meet that by 15 years, 16 years, many times their body gives out. They want to do so many things. They want to live life. They want to experience. They want to be joyous. but. Now their body is not supporting all their dreams and endeavor. And so many people I meet at a young age, and this is alarming, by 22, 23, now they find even their mind is giving out. So all the dreams are gone, all the hopes are gone. Now it's just about getting through that day somehow with some form of stimulation or some form of inhibition and just, just get through that day. And eventually by 40, 50, we look back at life and we, we imagine where did it all go? Where did the hopes go? Where did the dreams go? So for me, 
a fulfilled life is number one when you have a hope and dream your body and mind it can support you it can help you reach to the goal you want to give and number two for me a fulfilled life is when you can reach to that level and help other people reach to that level and if somehow we can do that then i think that is the difference between a white belt and a black belt yes sir what 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 should we be focusing on what do you in order to to achieve that so should we be focusing on our goals should we be focusing on daily practices should we be focusing on searching for something greater some spirituality what what where do you think that we should be spending our time and energy that depends completely on a person but what i recommend is give some time to the self and uh, it's like building yourself in a certain manner for example in my son's school they always have fire drills and why they have fire drills so that by chance just in case ever there is a fire they know what to do and there is not complete chaos so you thinking i want spirituality or you think you want your goal that's a journey and during that journey there is going to be sometimes fire or metaphorically some things that are happening so when we are spending time on ourselves in form of meditation or a mindfulness practice this is like a drill so that by chance if ever we are faced with some crippling anxiety or some emotional turmoil at least we know what to do so sometimes people come to me and say what should be my goal i said that that's your thing you decide what your goal is what should be my spiritual goal i said you decide what your spiritual goal should be i am just an helper to give you the tools so if you want to swim i'm the guy who'll help you uh with a technique or give you a life raft just in case you get cramped and you can't swim anymore so i believe every single person daily should at least have some time dedicated to himself with a precise mindfulness mental health practice that can help him pursue his goal yes sir what is that what what do you think that meant that practice should look like in actuality is it meditation is it breath work is it a walk in the woods is it journaling is it reading scripture sir so, uh it should be a meditation practice in which we focus on four things posture breath intention emotion so scripture is good but it is very tough to focus on scripture with a heavy mind uh journaling is again good but you will journal what you have inside so when we have a practice in which we have a systematic protocol a design protocol that we learn we acquire and many times we don't have time to make our own protocol so in uh, my heritage we had this whole concept of acharyas acharya would mean a philosopher who has spent his whole life developing protocols just like in greece there was pythagoras who had made an equation the pythagoras theorem so whenever you wanted to solve an equation you'll use his theorem so just like pythagoras was to math there were acharyas in the himalayas what were to mindfulness 
and they had their structures, they had their protocols, they had their interventions and people would go and learn them. And it depends on what our appetite is for mental growth. Some people want a simple mindfulness practice that can focus on 15 minutes and uh, a good mindfulness practice, as I said, has these four structures, posture, intention, emotion, and breath work. And if you want to go deeper, then there are more pillars that can be attached and the practice could go for an hour to two hour, depending upon what your personal goals are. So all these things that you mentioned, they are good. They are a good wellness practice, but uh, a mindfulness practice is much more focused on our mental health and resilience building. Yes, sir. And can you break those down for us a little bit in terms of the four aspects there? When you say posture, what are we, what are, what are we looking for? What should we be doing? Um, when you say breath, what is it? Intention. Do we bring a mantra to it or do we allow an intention to surface as we're in the mindfulness practice? Let me give you an easy mindfulness practice that you and all the listeners can try and it will have all four criteria. The first thing, let us become mindful of our body. So simple, I'm sitting on a chair, I become mindful of my posture. How I do that, I make my back straight, I put my hands on my thighs, I just feel my palms, my feet are on the ground and now I am centered, my posture is good. And now I start inhaling. So the easiest way to focus on the breath is we have a controlled breath. So a four count breath. Inhale with a four count, exhale with a four count. So if I say one, two, three, four, we inhale fully, deep breath. So. Then I say, exhale, four, three, two, one, we exhale fully. So now we have engaged two things. We have engaged the body through our posture. We have engaged the breath. Now let us add some intention to it. The great way to do that is through visualization. So visualize that there is a light on top of your head. Can you do that? There is a light on top of your head. You're like a Christmas tree and there's this big, beautiful light at the top of your head. So when you are breathing, one, two, three, four, the light is going down from the head, down through the heart, through the navel, to the base of the spine. Then you're going four, three, two, one, the light is going up. So now we have added intention. Now let us try to add emotion. Now visualize that this light at the top of your head represents something nice, something Beautiful, something like gratitude or something like love or something like uh, the power of the universe or something like nature, the light of the sun, the light of the wind or whatever brings a good, happy feeling. And now that light, that emotion is coming down one, two, three, four, filling you completely and going out four, three, two, one. So in your mind, you have that count, you are expanding and contracting and you try to do it even for a minute, you'll find your heart rate going down, you'll find your brain activity stabilizing and you'll see good things happening. So what I'm trying to say is meditation is a very deep scientific biological process. 
it can be spiritual if you want it to be it can be denominational or non denominational based upon a person's uh, uh, personal experiences how they were raised but always i teach to people do not let them be a barrier to trying to approach this practice oh it is just for people who want to do mantra or just for people who want to you know have a guru or something like that no this is a beautiful thing a powerful thing that humanity deserves so always i i look at the people i'm teaching and based upon uh, what will resonate most with them we have the science and the protocols and a little bit tweaking of that process just like when you're making somebody do a push up and if they can't do a full push up we make their knees be on the ground and then they try to do push up and then slowly we get one knee off we get two knee off and we get one hand off and then i don't know if there are no hand push ups or maybe there are then we call them enlightened push up or something like that but you see Love process it. can be like this yes where do you where do you suggest in that process people start i i'm i'm guessing as i'm asking the question but you said that one minute start but is it um just finding quietness is it finding a routine um and then what's the what do you what do you see as when does somebody try i guess the what are we trying to progress to is it so that we're doing this practice so we're ready for the fire alarm that you said that we're bringing this to everyday life so that when we encounter adversity or struggle or something outside of the plan that we know how to navigate it that is one of the benefits but to coming back to your question when do we start i would say start from a place of joy rather than a place of sorrow so many times i talk to people and somebody says i have a mindfulness practice and the other person says really what is wrong with you so there's mm. this whole thought that you really have to be stressed you know and that's how the whole narrative is that oh i was at the bottom and then i got this practice and i reached to the top so the normal people think that i have to be to the bottom then have these practices and then go to the top and many times i say to the people uh, why why wait to hit bottom then have a practice and then go to the top why not always have a practice so that we never fall in the bottom at the first place so one way of looking at a good meditation practice is when i am stressed when i am angry when i am frustrated at that time you know if there is acid use a base material to sort of uh, uh, take out the acidic properties but why not we start meditating from a place of joy and i believe then it will be more powerful more practical more progressive and at the same time more uh, qualitative so let us say we get up in the morning and we're not running away from anything and we just want to increase the joy in this moment many times i i am uh, speaking with some people and and they say ah this moment would go nice if we pop open a bottle of champagne and then you know i i i don't drink so i look at them and i'm thinking uh, okay they want to increase the joy from that experience so they pop up on a bottle of champagne i am different when i look at a situation and i say hmm, this situation 
I can make joy better if I become more mindful and meditative in this situation. So I pop open a few minutes of meditation and the situation become more joyous for me. So what I recommend is when somebody says, where do I start? I say, start from a place of joy if you can. Because some people don't have that benefit, don't have that ability because life has been heavy and hard. So yes, at that time we start with what we have, but if we have the ability, then start from a place of joy. In the morning when you get up, everybody picks up the phone, change that habit. Do some meditation. In the evening before we sleep, people like to do stuff random. Rather than that, have a meditation practice. So now we have two things, which emotion that we can focus upon when we are starting and the timing early in the morning before we throw ourselves into the world and late at night before we go into slumber. And if just these two can be seen as a beginning point, I believe we can have a better relationship with uh, the meditation practice. Yes, sir. That's great. With, as you were just speaking, you're talking about this like per greater state of joy. Um, you were born in a monastery to a quote in a, uh, enlightened yogi was your father. What does that mean? What does enlightened mean? It means many things for many people, but when I was a little child, it meant uh, that he is a great person. So, so the whole concept of father is a, I don't know, you know, the whole father's day and this and that. And, uh, so look at this setup, imagine there's a monastery, there are many boys and then there is this figure. This figure who's meditating, this figure who has his own thought and understanding about the world and um, beautiful understanding. It's like a microcosm inside a macrocosm. It's, it's like we are all on the same planet, but different worlds. So I'm in this, in this world in which there is this central sun, you know, like a figure or sun and all of us are like the planets and satellites and we have this wonderful routine and we are all living that life of routine and uh, we are all very happy and we are all very joyous and we are meditating and then my life changed when uh, the monastery started to have outreach programs and uh, the guru my father and again uh, I do not resonate with the word father because, you know, father comes with a person who will give you special attention or who will carry on your back. And uh, I never had that. So for me, he was more like a drill sergeant to all the boys, you know, where it is a goal. It is an altruistic behavior and it is uh, that is what we are all going towards. So we are going above uh, anything that is biological towards the psychological, towards the psyche, towards the greater, grander understanding of what life can be. And uh, when the outreach program started to happen when I was around 12 years old, uh, I started to meet other people outside of the monastery and I 
and I realized the world is not what I thought it was and there are a lot of things that that exist and I became more curious and I wanted to uh, uh, talk to the world and, and many times people would say oh we have stress we have this we have that and then I would just look at them and I'm like really and you don't meditate you know, what does meditation mean I said oh you don't know meditation you don't do an hour of yoga every day you don't meditate every night you don't focus on yourself and grow your own food and they look at me as if I'm a monkey from somewhere in the jungle and then I would want to share with them but at the same time learn about them and then I started to realize that everything that I learned everything that I received uh, for a normal person it's not doable because you know the whole world is like a circus everybody's a juggler everybody's juggling their responsibilities their lives their their stresses and in that if I come to them with a uh, grander than life mindfulness practice that the yogis have and I say you do this and uh, how will they juggle? It's like you can't juggle with 20 balls. There's a limit to human potential. And then I started to go to my teacher. So for me, that is what an enlightened monk means. That Then I had this trouble and I couldn't solve it. Because I had this thing that I wanted to share with the world. And what I had, they were not ready to digest it. So I went to that teacher, my guru, my master, and I, I told that, Help me, please help me. Now there's this confusion, show me the light. So think of an enlightened yogi as a pathfinder that you find in the middle of the desert. Think of him as a north star that will help you navigate through tough situations. Think of him as a, a raft that you need while you're sinking in the ocean. And, and that had an impact on my mental health because I, I was questioning a lot of things uh, that, you know, I, this is me and this is the outside world. And then he said, okay, okay. We'll learn, let's figure out, let's see how we can take these modalities and make them more protocol based, more systematic, more easy. And that's when we started to develop a system. Under his guidance, I started to develop the system of YOI, what we call the Yoga of Immortals. And why we call it the Yoga of Immortals? Because yoga basically is a system of having union with our own inner capacity and the universal powers and immortals because this knowledge is is immortal it's if you look at the indus valley civilization if you look at uh, india the subcontinent and you see this knowledge it, you can't find a source it just keeps on going back and back and back and back as if from the cradle of civilization this knowledge came it's like when the pandora's box was open and so many nonsense came out but even hope came out so it's like when the civilization was started so much mental health and so much physical nonsense came out but these techniques were also thrown in that okay for those of you who want they can get and then i learned and then i took permission and then i came out and i started teaching at the age of around uh, 19 or 20 and it's been a journey since then but even today, when I uh, go into a situation of chaos, I go back to my North Star. And I think that is what the enlightened yogi is. And he is like that to me because he never um, uh, questions me or he never questions my uh, intention or he never tries to impose his own judgment. He just sees things as what it is. It's like the sun, you know, 
you want to get tanned, you go sit under the sun, you get tanned. The sun is not like, oh, why are you getting so much tanned? Why are you putting sunscreen or umbrella? There's no judgment. So I like that. I like having a place in the world in which I can be me. I can have dreams and desires and there's no judgment. And that is beautiful and something that the world needs. And I hope there can be more enlightened people. Yes. Yeah, how, um, I, I love that. And I, I couldn't agree more. The, the one thing I, when people ask if you could, if you could bestow any power amongst the humanity, what would you do? And I, my answer would be to people stop judging, judging each other, judging themselves. I believe that that is the, the crux of what holds most people back from connection, connection to themselves. They end up being just, um, you know, basically they're pre-programmed from their past conditioning to execute in a certain way. And they don't even take control. There's no control of the emotions anymore because it just um, comes through without any level of awareness to anything. Is, is that part of, is that part of, and I love this idea of the, and we'll get to, I, I'm excited to talk about yoga for mortals and the, the study you've done and the work you've done. Um, but in terms of the, the healing aspects, your father was the, the founder of, or the creator of Indian healing. Is that correct? He was uh, the propagator of integrative healing modalities because uh, people who were practicing Eastern modalities would just say this modality is the best. And people who were practicing the uh, pharmaceutical interventions and Western modalities would say this is the best and everything else is just paganism. And he was the gentleman who tried to bridge the gap and say that uh, integrative healing is the best methodology. And yes, through pharmaceutical interventions, we can help the body. We can help uh, uh, get rid of pathogens. And sometimes it is extremely necessary, but we can't just heal the body. The great healing can only happen if the mind and the healing of the mind is integrated into the philosophy of uh, healing the body. And he started this whole outreach program through the monastery called Cure is Possible, where he wanted to work with all the physicians around the world to explain to them the importance of cognitive healing, psychological healing with physical healing. Because many times when a person goes through a life-changing disease, uh, it has a great psychological scar even though they have healed themselves. So if a person has come out of cancer, body is healed, but the mind will always live in a state of fear. What if it comes back? How will I live my life? And that fear does affect our day-to-day -day activity. And now we know, we see the result of long-term chronic stress, chronic fear, chronic anxiety. It does have an extreme physiological impact and it does lead to some form of either economic toll, physical toll, or biological toll, behavioral disorders. So he was at that time during the early 80s, 90s, he started to talk and he started to bring the integration, you know, bridge. And he said, oh, you know, physicians, you and I, we are friends, we are friends. So, you know, it shouldn't be either one or the other. What if we marry both? Then what a beautiful, fantastic team it would be. And then the, the, the legend was born that he's the uh, father of healing. But 
more than that, he was more of a uh, cupid, cupid of healing, where he would take his arrows of integrative therapy and just shoot on physicians and then shoot on even the uh, yoga people because sometimes the yoga people become very counter culture that you know this is it or that is it no it's not black and white it's whole holistic yes yeah i love that it's it seems so um confusing as to why that's taken so long for that marriage to happen of mind and body where it seems like the the traditional, you know, particularly on the in the West, the body is of science. It's biology and chemistry, and the mind seemed to be thought of as um, for the mystics and the gurus and the yogis, and they were two different things. And I, I think it's so refreshing that that awareness is coming to play. That what you, we what we what happens with our minds does manifest in the body yes. and that we do have control over, um, or at least it, it may, if not control, um, there's effects to different biological systems from what happens in the mind. It's a biology of belief aspect of these things. Um, what in terms of that actual, practice. So when he is doing, or you, I know you're a healer as well. When you go through your healing practice, what does that look like? Is that, um, does it look like sit on the couch and tell me the problems you had as a kid? Or is it bringing people through a breath work and meditation practice? Is it um, trying to get people to be more aware? What, where do you start with that with somebody? If somebody, one of our listeners is listening and they're like, that sounds really interesting. I would love to get past this fear of getting cancer again. What should I do? So, sir, uh, because I was born and raised in a monastery, I know uh, the reality of being in a monastery and I know the romantic version and uh, I know the fulfillment that can also come from uh, being uh, in the world. So. I always wanted an integrative approach. So I started to do these things when I first came out that were like retreat. And retreat was when people would come and then from morning till evening, I would make them do the processes because if I just keep on listening to them speaking of the same sorrow, 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 and it's amazing. And I, I, I experienced this many times. I experienced this with my wife, you know, uh, when something, happens, you know, wife, husband, something happens, it happens for on the watch, five seconds. But when she's explaining to me what happened, she will take 27 minutes. And then it's a poem. It's not reality, it's poetry. And poetry is opinion. It's not a fact. The fact is I forgot to bring the grocery. And the poetry is that that day when the night was high and the moon was big, and the dogs were howling. I knew there was a bad omen. And at that moment, when the brinjals and orcas were finished, you came home empty-handed. And nay, nay, the tear came from my eye. It's a poetry. And no matter how much performance I see, how much theater I see, she's not feeling better. And I am definitely feeling worse. 
So how will it help? Plus, we have seen, there is research now, the more you repeat something, the more it, it goes inside from short-term memory to long-term memory, then it becomes your narrative, then your neuro pathways start to be designed according to that narrative. So you're sitting with somebody, they are telling you that story, they are going deeper into that. They are not dropping that story, they're holding on to it. Now they are uh, like a spider, they're stuck in the web of their own story, of their own shell. So I never listen to, you know, a person's opinion. The fact is, something happened and definitely it was traumatic. And the fact is, at that time we did not have the tools to manage what happened or there was some resilience or we were at a vulnerable state that we let all those things come inside us and now they are inside us. So whatever happened, it happened. How do we help those arrows come out? So I just sit with them and I make them do these protocols from morning till evening. Let's work on the self. Let's work on the self. Let's work on the emotions. Let's work on the breath. Let's work on the body. Let's work on the thought. And after four or five days of that, things change. Now, when they have worked on it, their perception changes. Now, when they are looking at the situation, instead of complain, there is a different viewpoint. And I think that's the whole point of therapy. When, when we can have a different perception and we can find some form of learning, and if not even learning, then some form of closure. And if not even closure, it happened, acceptance. It was a part of my life but it doesn't define me. And I have the ability to grow. I take power back. So when I came out, I, I for 12 years, I, I did that and even now I keep on doing this. But then uh, sometimes, now I can't do that so much because earlier uh, in a month I would do four or five such retreats. But now I work a lot with the hospital systems in North America, the hospice care systems and various other organizations where I sit with them, I try to understand uh, what they are going through and I make simple systems for them. First, I train them for a month, a four week process where two days in a week I train them, uh, one or either on Monday, one on Friday so that they can at least have the power of having a strategic pause. That's what I work on Friday, how to switch off the mind and on Monday we focus upon focus so how to kick start the mind so we know how to start the mind how to switch off the mind and then we work upon anxiety how to deal with anxiety in a yogic manner depression how to deal with that you know, basic things insomnia how to deal with that quality of life how to increase resilience training to help reduce burnout once in four weeks i have made them master these skills then i make audio visual content for them I give it to the LMS systems of the organization so that whenever these people, they want uh, access to it, they have it and they can practice it. But the beautiful thing is after four weeks of training, then it's become a part of them. It's like biking. So, you know, it's like if you box for a year, then no matter how old you are, somebody will come with a jab and you know what to do. So it, it, it just happens and that's what I believe in. So I don't like to do uh, wellness performances and wellness performances is like, you know, there is some event happening, please come be a keynote speaker, talk something like that. Uh, how will that matter? How, what is the take home value from it? 
So I always approach people and I say that if, if this is something that can happen, it would be phenomenal. So then I teach in that manner. Yes, sir. So uh, what, what would you suggest for somebody that can't commit, you know, that type of, they want to just institute some sort of routine or practice to try to move the needle for themselves, but they can't commit to, you know, days or weeks to um, come and work with you. Where, so that's why I, what would, I, what would, I understand this and that's why I'm going to organizations. I want this to be, you know, organization should be concerned because most of the stresses that we do is an occupational hazard. If we work uh, in a construction site, it's their job to give us hard hat and steel toe two, steel toe shoe, sorry, shoe, not two, steel toe shoe. Yes or no, Mr. Ben? And because it's an occupational hazard, something will fall on our head, but boom, we die. In the same way, tech industry, hospital industry, I was working for a hospice care during the COVID time. That one, one place, it had 500 deaths. And why during COVID time those deaths meant so much? Because you won't allow access to your family. Now imagine dying in a facility, not being able to meet the family, how much residue would be created in that work environment and those poor healthcare workers, they have to deal with it. They have to take all that residue from that patient. They have to take all that residue from that family because of whatever policies, because of what the world was going through. Now we give hard hats to the construction workers. Should we give these psychological, non-pharmaceutical, behavioral healthcare tools to the healthcare workers? And why they should have to find the time that, oh, I go back home after my 12 hour shift, then cook food for my children, make sure they are fine and then find time for my meditation. Wrong policy, bad policy. Is society heading for critical failure? It is the organizations, every single, the ones who care for their people and it is an occupational hazard. You are the one giving the stress. You are the one increasing the inflation. You are the one cutting the salary. You are the one taking away the job. You are the one making the person live in this state of fear. So it is your responsibility to make sure that in your work timing, in your time and time, your employees who are human beings, not robots, human beings, have access to some beautiful healthcare modality that can benefit from their mental health. And that's why I, I, I know I can, I can just go out there, make an app and it's, it's, we are living in, in, in this world and in Bay Area, everybody likes to monetize mindfulness. And it's, it's, it's funny sometimes because it's my heritage, my culture, so many people who don't know anything about it, for them it's a key word. There is no science, there's no research, there's no nothing. But just keyword, use the word Himalaya, use the word yoga, use the word mindfulness and make it into a multi-billion dollar industry. But there are real people behind it. People like me who spend whole lives trying to make something. And that's why because I've spent my whole life, rather than monetizing from this, I, I, I like to go to the policy makers so that it can reach people. Because again, I don't want to make an app that, uh, you know, somebody pays $500 for a year. Again, is an occupational hazard the hard hat company should give. So if there is stress 
it should be so nice and good if the good companies help me make the systems and this is what's happening right now people are concerned i'm meeting good employers good healthcare service providers good hospital systems that are so concerned for their employees and i love partnering with them i love talking for them i love helping their employees because these are good people trying to make good policies that will help qualitative changes in the long term and that's what we should focus upon long term qualitative changes not short term symptomatic relief yes sir yeah i love that the, i love that the the short term symptomatic relief is um kind of what the healthcare has turned into essentially but it's not really healthcare it's sickness care and i love that what you're trying to bring to light is more of the the healthcare aspect of how would you when you hear the word health what does what does that mean to you when i want hear the word health what comes to mind is balance balance is the ability to live your life for example uh, sometimes these very very rich people they spend their health so to speak to get their richness and why i say spend their health if you become substance uh, dependent or if body is not working the way it should or if mental health is not the way it's supposed to be then the price for that wealth is health and then you lose your wealth to gain health for me health is remaining in a state of balance where even if you are achieving all the success that you deserve you are not losing something from your mind and body personally i believe in both physical health and mental health because i think the body is wonderful the body is beautiful all the wonderful things that i've ever done in my life is because of my body and i know i come from a yogic background and in the end all the pursuits are enlightenment and this and that but if you don't have your body you can't pursue even enlightenment because you'll sit you'll try to meditate body will give up how will you do it so the body is a gift that nature has given to us and for me health is that when you demand something from the body the body can give it to you without the body dipping into the reserves and creating some form of uh, by product in some disease or disorder and if we can have that uh, delivery on demand you know delivery on demand from the body that if you need to work 24 hours there is such nice relation and balance in the body the body says i got you bro it's all right you're so nice to me 24 hours done and then you're also like oh you gave me 24 hours so nice i'll give you this time now more good nutrition more nice health more nice healing for me health is not being societal because people say society is you know sudden and as a monastery monk i have seen death very closely because uh, in the monastery in in that place where i am from uh, 
like in the Western countries, people are rich, they have resources, so they have hospice. Uh, sometimes in those places, if there is an old person and there is no hospice, they come and they give it to the monk. You know, now you please take care of our old and sick time. And then we take care. And I've talked to so many people, even as a child, and I realized this, that suicide can be slow. Any person who's not taking care of his body, he's committing a slow suicide. Because if we are eating bad food, we are not being mindful of our lifestyle. And we know it's having a toll. So a person who's having a cigarette, he knows it will kill him. But it's a slow suicide, but it is a suicide. It is some form of self-harming behavior. And many times I see the definition of health has become uh, and I'm saying this because I, I won't name names. I, I was once approached by a country somewhere in Asia in which uh, it, it's a very rich country, you know, very opulent. And then they said that, oh, you please come and work for our hotel systems. And a lot of party people go there. And when I went inside that hotel, uh, it was like a Nicki Minaj video or a Cardi B video. You know, that hotel was like that. And I'm like, yeah, I've never seen anything like that before. And then the manager comes to uh, take my interview and uh, she is very tall, very pretty, having, you know, nice bikini and everything. And, and I'm just out of a few years out of the monastery and I'm all like, just, you know, looking at everything, trying to understand what's happening. And she comes and she sits and she says, you're a mindfulness expert. I said, yes, yes, I am, I am. And then uh, she's like, Actually, you see, people come to us for party. We have these hotels and it's so nice. And and uh, when people get drunk or high or whatever, uh, then in the morning time or night time, sometimes we give them banana bags. And I asked the lady, what does a banana bag mean, madam? And she said, banana bag is an IV. So that all the toxins they've put inside, they can put outside. So when the toxins can go outside, she said, if people start partying at uh, 4 p.m., now they'll start partying at 2 p.m. And she had all these projections that over a year, this is how much economy we will be able to generate if we give them banana bags. And she said, now there's so much research in mental health and this and that. So if you can put people in that right framework through your meditation practices, so even if they start partying more than 2 at 1 p.m., then this is the projection rate that is going to be. So tell me, would you want to be hired and we'll give you this nice penthouse and you come and you do your meditations here and people will sit with their glass of champagne and this and that. And I thought, hmm, champagne mindfulness looks catchy. You know, if there can be hot yoga and whatnot, goat yoga, maybe champagne mindfulness. And then suddenly I'm like, Chalak, Jan, come out of it, come out of it. I said, okay, thank you so much, madam. Thank you for the offer and I just came up and, and this is not health. Health is not uh, uh, 20 drinks till you pass out and yeah, I'm so healthy. I can kill myself so much and not die. This is Russian roulette. Russian roulette. That's the thing. No? Russian roulette. My apologies. Still learning the lingo, but still that's not health. Health is being in love with your body. Health is having an understanding. Health is being an in state of awareness. 
when a dog gets sick a dog will eat grass he is not going to have courses on veganism he is not studying ayurveda there is just such a nice compatibility that there is a mindfulness oh something is wrong the dog will eat grass and he will you know take it out of their system it is just the human beings that have become so unhealthy unhealthy meaning no awareness of what's happening in the body no awareness of what's happening in the mind and then things break till the moment now we don't even know what to do and the water has gone above the head so i believe in prevention is better than cure but to have a preventative and promotive mindset there should be love between the body and the mind and i think that is what real health is so doesn't matter if right now you don't look like that if you can have the mindset then very soon you can come to that realization because if you can see if you can feel then i'm sure you can reach as well yes sir. love that love the idea of the balance in the um the mind and the body is there a third there's mind body and is there is there energy or prana or chi or life force is there something else or if we do body we do mind we're good i believe in it i uh, i've experienced it and i think people should have access to it it is uh, say it what is it i'm saying it it because it's the most a non confrontational way to say it if i say it other than any other it then people will assume it is not their it and i want it to be for everybody hence i say it it is a strength that gives us potential the easiest way i i try to explain it to kids is like when i'm speaking on the mic it's my voice but it gets amplified it's same my voice but my voice is a wave and then the amplifier gives power to it and if i don't have that mic then i have to go talk to every person and my voice only goes to 100 people but if i have it then i become strong stronger than i could be if i was just simple old me and i try to explain it to kids i i try to explain it as you have your phone imagine a phone without a wifi connection a phone is a brick it's useless we go back to the time of nokia 3310 where the only thing we can do is play snake you know and uh, what's the point but if we have wifi or data then the phone has so much more potential potential that we couldn't even fathom 20 years ago so why live your life without that connection to that it why live your life weak and you could be so much more stronger if you could be one with the it i don't talk about it because many people don't want to listen about it because they think that and this funny thing because every sad person thinks that their sorrow is the biggest in the world every angry person thinks that their anger is the biggest in the world and every person who believe in their it thinks that their it is the strongest it in the world and there is no other it and then the thing is you can either 
look at the sand or you can make castles in the sand and say, I only believe in this castle. I'm not a castle guy. I am the beach guy. I like the beach. And there are many castles in the sand. And then the castles are temporary. Look at what happened to the Greek pantheon, the Egyptian pantheon, the Norse pantheon. They have become a caricature of themselves in the name of superheroes and what we see in movies. So, so where I come from, they never made castles in the sand. They never said that this castle is it. They said the beach is it. And when the beach is it, you know, your, your scope of the potential of that it becomes stronger. So when we go deeper into the mindfulness practices, we go deeper into the meditation practice. And now the meditation practice is not just uh, a tool that we use to help ourselves in the world, because you have to understand sooner or later, you're done. So one of the great ancestors of mine, uh, from the same monastery where I'm from, uh, about five, six hundred years ago, the story is there of this guy. And uh, he was living and two people came to him. One was a king and one was the merchant. The king had just lost his empire to tyranny. And uh, his family had been put in jail and his soldiers were being tortured. So the king wanted to learn yoga to somehow get his kingdom back. And then there was the merchant. The merchant, you see, was married to the prettiest girl of the land and it didn't go out so well. And, uh, you know, what happens, things happen. And then the merchant was just like, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. You know, with the whole thing, I've experienced what I could. I've seen ups and downs. I've been a bajillionaire for all my life. All the nice chariots I've had, all the good horses I could have ridden, I have rode, all the nice houses, all the pretty women. I have been through those relationship cycles and now even my marriage has gone kaput. I'm done, I'm done. Now I want to go in the pursuit of it and become Buddha. So there are two types of yoga. There is the king's yoga to go back to the world and conquer your kingdom. And then there is the merchant's yoga to go deeper and discover your own human potential, to discover the it and be one with it. And when you are one with the it, then everything else just looks like a circus. Some people call it becoming Buddha. Some people call it being enlightened, but it's just that you're done and now you're going with it. A lot of people, when they think yoga in the West, nobody knows the merchant's yoga. Everybody just knows the king's yoga. And even in the East, where I come from, nobody talks about, nobody knows, nobody's heard. And even the people who come out of the monasteries, they never talk about the merchant's yoga. They just talk about the king's yoga. They just talk about the physical aspect, the stretches, the asanas, the this, the that. But they are silent. And then somebody comes to them one day and says, I want the merchant's yoga and I'm done with the king's yoga. And then even then that person knows, ah, finally you have come. Let's get down to business. So there is a whole side of this which does exist and eventually that is the goal because then that brings happiness and stability because 
when we see people and when I see hospices, there are so many people who have not found that center even at the time of death. How good it would be if after 50, everybody is introduced to the merchant's yoga. So that they start to, you know, finish whatever is needed on this realm and they start to be at peace and they start to be at balance. Instead, after the pandemic, I think everything is so futile and why wait till 50? I think everybody should be taught both the merchant's yoga and the king's yoga so that just in case ever there is time to check out of this great hotel in which we all are living, at least we know how. And I believe if we can do that, then there would be little less misery and more joy. Yes. But how do you teach how do you teach the merchant yoga? How did do, how does that how do you teach someone that? More than I teach someone that, somebody should be willing to learn that. It's like uh, uh, you, my dear Mr. Ben, are a wonderful coach. And you must be training elite athletes. And you must be training people who want to shed a few pounds. Both of their goals are different. Both of their capacities are different. And you know it when you are trying to push somebody. If you try to push somebody who just want to shed a few pounds to elite athlete level, they'll run away. They'll scold you. They'll scream at you. They'll be like, hey, Ben is, Mr. Ben is not nice. You know, he, he tried to kill me. So, you know, so I, I think we, we can talk about it. But then again, who is it who wants to learn? You know, most of the time, even when people come to me, they're like, can you teach me Kaya Kalp of the YOI? Kaya Kalp literally means if I can become younger. Or if I can become prettier, you know, uh, meditation for, is, what is it called? Botox? Botox, yeah. Yeah. Isn't Botox bum? Botox is like ways that you like fill your skin in to make wrinkles go away. What do you call a person's ass? Isn't that also Botox? Oh, that's, that's buttocks. Buttocks. Bo there's bo Botox, B-O-T-O-X, Botox and buttocks. Hmm. B-U-T-T-O-C-K-S, uh, whatever it is, buttocks. I used to imagine very weird things. <laughs> I just got a buttocks injection. I'd be like, <laughs> okay. But still, <laughs> people are more interested. They're like, oh, yoga to tighten your buns. Or yoga to, uh, uh, you know, get rid of love handles. Or yoga to make wrinkle go away. This is king's yoga. How do you squeeze in the merchant's yoga in this? So they are still so much stuck. The same cycle again and again and again. Somewhere down the line, people have to say, it's okay, what, what next? It's like, okay, I did that when I was poor. The whole cycle, now I'm rich, I want to do it. Now I'm richer, I want to do it again. Now I'm richest, I want to do it again. Now I'm old, I want to do the whole cycle again. But now I want... Botox yoga, Botox, Botox, you know what I'm trying to say. So you can't talk about merchants yoga to that. So you keep quiet and you hope that one day there'll be a bunch of merchants coming and then you can reveal the real extent of what you have. Because many times I do feel that it is like using a nuclear bomb to kill a mosquito. These practices are so strong, so powerful, so ancient, so 
life changing but a person just say okay uh, can i look prettier and i said yes you can go ahead come let's let's do the king's yoga but you know and if a person wants to go there and if they want to learn then of course definitely there are paths and there are ways and it is not like you are then going away in the jungle i do not believe in buddhas under a tree i believe in buddhas in the boardroom i think this whole concept of going away once you have everything is a weird concept you need light where there is darkness and sometimes i feel little bit angst towards even and i love my people i love my monastery i love so much about them but i feel that they could have done so much more if they wanted to come out and i know they, they had a vision and it's not like they they wanted to come out and they didn't it's like there was a lot of persecution because india was a slave for a long time we were under empires and and the first thing that those empires did was get rid of the wise men you know these pesky people who try to educate people because it's easier to subjugate a uneducated society so you know a lot of times people like to say oh the himalayan yogi is not the himalayan yogi is the yogi who ran away to save his life in the himalayas because he was being persecuted he was being killed so eventually yes the time was right and these guys did start to come out they still start to talk because it, it does happen even the shaolin monastery was broken so many times and the monks then went ahead and they remade it so maybe they had something and they didn't bring the wisdom out but uh, now that it is happening and the wisdom is coming out i do feel that slowly uh, the shift is happening the consciousness shift is happening and after the pandemic especially after the pandemic personally if you ask me mr ben i have had more interest in the merchants yoga rather than the kings and that has me so hopeful and happy that uh, we are evolving as a society and imagine if these people who are at that level of consciousness and they become the boardroom heads you know the boardroom buddhas then they would lead the world to a good direction today if we see all the practices and farming we know all the harmful effects of pesticides of all the harmful effects of industrialization because we don't have a boardroom buddha we have a boardroom demon you know who doesn't care and is like uh, i don't care about anybody just give me more 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 and if that guy sitting there can be the boardroom buddha then you know he he can be a bit more altruistic and it doesn't need to always be about what do i get about it is what society can get out of it and that mindset if that can be bought i believe it would be amazing so my dream my dream is bringing merchants yoga to the world and that merchant yoga then those buddhas we put in the boardrooms then they become the leaders then they become the helpers then they become the consultants to guide people out of the massive mental health pandemic that's happening yes sir yeah i believe that i believe we're on that path i believe that there is a, a little uh, evolution of our consciousness and i believe that more and more people are becoming aware of this i believe that the connection that we now have that opportunity through the 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 connection that's not real connection but the opportunity to, for people to listen to people like you over platforms like this has opened up 
and leveled the world in ways that people weren't able to experience this stuff before. So they stayed in their own darkness in a sense. And I, I believe that there is this, I love the words you're using, the Buddha in the boardroom. I think that there is a, a awareness to the harmful effects of industrialized farming and pesticides that wasn't there 20 years ago. And it's because of people are becoming, it's easier to become educated in what you want to become educated in. And as people get exposed to more things, I think that your dream of um, bringing the merchant's yoga to the world, I think we just coined that, by the way, you should get a trademark on that. That's that's a that's such a, a phenomenal, noble pursuit. And it's something that I, I, I am incredibly passionate about as well, probably just from a different perspective, but it's, it's exactly what I want to do as well. Um, as we begin to wrap this up a little bit, I'd love to revisit something kind of full circle back to the first time we met and you led um, a, a group of us at our gym through a meditation. And it was, I found it really powerful. Uh, it was just for people that weren't there to contextualize a little bit. We went through a, a very, very vigorous breath work exercise. Um, you know, and then we, you led us through this kind of visualization of essentially being at death's door. You know, literally there was a door and on the other side of the door was death. Could it, it's, it's, it's such a topic that usually people shy away from. We in my family with our kids and we have young kids, we talk about it all the time because I'd like to normalize it. Um, cause I think it brings a lot of power and perspective to the way we live our lives. If we recognize it as where we could go super deep into this, but you know, this is your moment is in and to live this short time frame as this human experience. But can you kind of share your, what you walked us through that day? If you remember it. First of all, I loved your gym. I love the people there. Huh. So beautiful and strong, and it's it's nice, and uh, it felt like a temple to me. A temple of <laughs> I love that. Temple of uh, yeah, it is because where I come from, they, they they make everything into something divine, and truly, your gym looked very like a temple. So, and that's why I, I went a little bit. Well, we're in the midst of a construction project while you're here. So <laughs> maybe a temple under construction. Yes, sir. So, uh, uh, and I felt very nice. You were very kind. So uh, I thought we could explore more topics because uh, you were kind to me and I, I love kindness. And uh, coming to death, I would like to share an experience of my own life when I was uh, the first first trip when I made uh, I was uh, coming out of the monastery and I was giving a lecture in London and uh, I was living in a hotel and when I went to the hotel they told me sir the checkout is going to be at 12 noon I said sure fine and uh, you know where I come from, there were no no watches, nothing. So you don't, there's no such thing as 12 noon. There is 12-ish. So there's a window. It is from 12 to 3. It's it's all 12. It's all relative, you know. So it's fine. And I didn't know, I didn't care. 
and the checkout was at 12 at a certain date and when the checkout was there uh, I wasn't prepared so at around 1.30 I went to my room all my stuff that thrown it out it was a miserable experience I had to take all the stuff push it in my bag uh, went to the airlines and uh, they said sir you have extra baggage and I said what does extra baggage mean they said sir you have to pay to play you can't just bring your bags on the flight and uh, I had to pay and a lot even my bags weren't worth as much as I had to pay for the extra baggage and I just want you to think Mr. Ben are you there? Yep I'm here yep Ah, I couldn't see you on the video, so I was wondering, yes. Yep. So, uh, how much trouble happened because I wasn't ready for checkout? And because I wasn't ready for checkout, one, my checkout experience was miserable. They literally had to throw me out. And number two, because I wasn't ready for checkout, there was so much extra baggage that I was the big penalty I had to pay. And the same is with us in life. If you read any theological scripture and anything, then if we don't prepare for checkout, number one, there will not be a lot of dignity in that process. And I believe everybody deserves dignity in life and dignity in transition as well. If there is no dignity, there is going to be great grief and there is going to be great need of trauma counseling. But if there is dignity, there can be a beautiful transition. And if you are ready for checkout, you won't even ever have extra baggage. Because extra baggage only is acquired when you think your fluids are, are eternal. Because nowadays when we watch movies, it's Thor 1, Thor 2, Thor 3, Thor 4. And when I get old, it'll be Thor 44. And now you're thinking, still happening? Still because in our mind, it's like one day my turn will come, then your turn will come, then my turn will come. And then we just keep on holding on to these afflictions of anger and resentment and emotions and unresolved issues. But if somewhere in our mind, there is a mindset that this is temporary, checkout could be today, then why do I hold on to this nonsense? I drop it and I focus on the things that are important, that need to be cherished, that need to be celebrated. So whenever I'm doing some form of meditation, I always, you know, try to sneak it in. It's like my Trojan horse to remind people that life is temporary. Be ready for checkout. And why I introduce that Trojan horse sometimes, sneak it in, is because it helps them to let go of those things that they know eventually they will let go. Eventually, everybody has to let go. One day, we will let go. We will come out of the trauma. We will be healed. But we just procrastinated that day. Why not today we just sit and we remind ourselves that what if today was checkout and this is it. This is what I had. And then you'll see forgiveness will come easy. Love will come easy. Acceptance will come easy. Checkout will come easy. And there'll be no extra baggage and you can just pass through security. Unless you look like me, that TSA will really love you nicely everywhere. But that is a separate thing you just go through and you are happy. So that's why I sometimes like to, you know, sneak it in and remind people that it's okay to let go. It's okay to focus on your life. It's okay to forgive. Yes. Sir. And I believe this time of checkout, 
uh, it's a great great teacher and just reminding of that time it, it changes people it it gives them perspective and i believe perspective is a good result of a mindfulness practice yes sir couldn't agree more we talk about perspective a lot on this show so I think that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Ishan, I thank you so much for coming on. We all have so much to learn. If somebody wanted to dig deeper, where should they try to reach out to, to learn more about you? I am uh, apparently on LinkedIn. Uh, and LinkedIn is Ishan Shivanand. I don't know, just Google. And I'm sure somebody will be there. Uh, you have to understand I am a very simple person who doesn't know a lot of stuff, but there are some very good and kind people that are wanting to uh, help reach the message everywhere. Like yourself, Mr. Ben, you're such a kind gentleman and I'm honored to be here. And thank you to the listener who listen. So what I would recommend to all the wonderful people listening, number one, Google, uh, Ishan Shivanan, and all the good things you read, that's the right things. Everything else, I have no idea who wrote it, what it got there. So. Once you see, if you find a website, uh, LinkedIn, I know definitely because in my phone, I have LinkedIn account. So I'm there. The second thing what I would recommend is you people go to your organization, go to your HR and ask them to have me come and give training, four week training, not one day training. What's the point? You want hard hat. You need hard hat so that when manager throws rock, you are protected. So go to your organization. Ask them to have this wonderful mindfulness training and, and scientific because this is not just out there and this is real. This is real. This is an actual person who's lived it, learned it, bought it, then worked with scientists on it because these are keywords. And I, I loved how Mr. Ben said that, you know, we should trademark something. Don't worry. I don't want to trademark something because there are there's 10,000 years of history. You trademark this, I will make something else. So this is real. And I'm sure when you open Google, you find 20,000 times, oh, we combine the East and West modalities and there is science and this and that. But is there actually, if you Google yoga of immortals, you'll see the published papers, you'll see the peer reviewed journal entries, you will see the science behind it and it's so complicated. Even I don't know, and I'm not supposed to know. I'm a trained achare. I'm not a scientist. It's the scientists finding, and they wrote many, many good things. So take all that data, go to your HR, and tell them we deserve this training. And if that happens, then I'll be to your organization, state, and place. And I would love to eat your food, sit with you, meditate with you, laugh with you, cry with you. And after four weeks, I will get lost and you will be on your own, but you will be happy and you will have the tools that you need in life. Love it so much. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for everybody that listens. Thank you for your ratings and reviews. And we will see you next week for another episode of Chasing Excellence. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ben. And thank you, everybody. May you have a good life. Thank you. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening.